Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Neu und majestätisch gut. Probier jetzt den Hamburger Real Barbecue Bacon und den Hamburger Real Smoky. Nur für kurze Zeit bei McDonald's. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Alex Ritson and in the early hours of Saturday the 2nd of March, these are our main stories. The US announces that it will start airdropping aid into Gaza. It is extremely difficult to do an airdrop in such a, a crowded environment as is Gaza. A lot of people confined to small spaces. It comes as the World Health Organization says that 10 children at a hospital in the Palestinian territory have starved to death. The billionaire tech entrepreneur Elon Musk sues the company behind ChatGPT artificial intelligence. And the BBC reports from inside Iran for the first time in five years. Also in this podcast, Haiti strikes a deal that could potentially see Kenyan police patrolling its streets in an effort to tackle lawlessness. And these elephant families, they are burying those calves. There were uh, herds of elephants. They were doing vocalization, which means they are making some sounds. A remarkable discovery about Indian elephants and what they do with their dead. The US has announced that it will start to airdrop humanitarian aid to Gaza over the coming days. President Biden said not enough assistance was getting through and he also wanted hundreds more trucks to get into the Palestinian territory. The White House said it was also redoubling its efforts to open a maritime corridor to bring in more supplies. At a media briefing, the White House National Security Advisor John Kirby said the logistics of an airdrop in Gaza would be challenging. It is extremely difficult to do an airdrop in such a, a crowded environment as is Gaza. Very, very densely populated, a lot of people confined to small spaces. So you want to do it in a way that you can get it as close as you can to the people in need, but not in a way that puts them in any danger. And so the Pentagon will be doing a raft of planning on this. They'll work their way through that. But I do want to stress that we fully expect that the, the third and fourth and fifth one won't look like the first and second one. We'll learn and we'll, and we'll try to improve. The announcement by the US comes amid growing warnings of famine in Gaza as a result of the months-long conflict between Israel and Hamas. On Friday, the World Health Organization said that a tenth child had been officially registered in a Gaza hospital as having starved to death and that the actual number is probably higher. The figures were compiled by the Hamas-run health ministry. Neda Torfik reports from the UN in New York. 
The WHO spokesman Christian Lynn Meyer said the official number of children to have starved to death in Gaza, 10, was a very sad threshold, and the real number was expected to be higher. He said there had been multiple warnings that the system in Gaza was more than on its knees, and the real catastrophe was that food and supplies were being cut off deliberately. Mr. Lynn Meyer said the amount of aid that entered the territory in February was only half of what came in in January, and even that was insufficient for the needs of the people. Israel denies blocking the entry of aid. Data collected by the UN in January showed one in six children in northern Gaza under the age of two were acutely malnourished. Of them, 3% were suffering from severe wasting, the most life-threatening form of malnutrition. U.N. agencies say the situation is likely far graver now. Mr. Lindmeyer reiterated the U.N. call for a ceasefire. He said people had become so desperate for food and fresh water that they were risking their lives to support their children and themselves. Nada Torfik in New York. Meanwhile, there's been growing international concern about what happened to cause the deaths of more than 100 Palestinians seeking aid from a convoy in northern Gaza. A growing number of countries have called for a full investigation, which Israel says it has launched. On Friday, there was further disagreement about what exactly happened. The Israeli army admitted it opened fire on people, but said most of the victims had been trampled or crushed. However, that version was strongly contradicted by some doctors at Palestinian hospitals. From Jerusalem, here's our correspondent, Paul Adams. With foreign governments calling for an investigation, including Israel's close ally, the United States, questions remain about exactly what happened in the early hours of yesterday morning. Israeli officials have acknowledged that their forces opened fire on Palestinians they believed posed a threat, but they also claim that the vast majority of those who died were trampled underfoot or run over by aid lorries. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht is an army spokesman. There was a a mob uh, and it was a massive amount of people and uh, these are people that approached the IDF. It was near in the vicinity of the last truck of that convoy. Soldiers felt threatened. From what we understand at this point, the, the majority of people that got hurt in this tragic event were from the engagement with these trucks. But today, doctors in at least two of the hospitals which received the dead and wounded said the injuries they saw were almost all caused by gunfire. Dr Amjad Aliwa is a doctor at Shifa Hospital. He told us that he joined the crowds waiting for aid on Wednesday night and was there when the shooting began on Thursday morning. He was shot in the leg. The trucks, uh, when it came, uh, everyone uh, runs uh, to get the the food for his family. But uh, the Israeli soldiers open fire and about uh, uh, hundreds of uh, people falling down and uh, more than 1,000 was injured. The crackle of automatic gunfire was clearly audible in video shot at the time of the incident but in the dark and the chaos it wasn't clear who was shooting or why. Israel says it's still investigating. Paul Adams in Jerusalem. Elon Musk is returning to court. The world's second richest man, who is worth $183 billion, is suing OpenAI, the makers of ChatGPT. Mr Musk claims it's gone back on its founding principles of benefiting humanity and that instead it's focused on maximising profits for its major investor, Microsoft. I heard more from our Silicon Valley reporter, James Clayton. He's really been frustrated for quite a few years now. 
OpenAI was designed as a not-for-profit, and as the name would suggest, it was designed to be open and transparent. And sort of very slowly, in a sort of piecemeal way, the company has become for-profit, or at least it has a for-profit arm, and ChatGPT and GPT-4 are not open source. And this lawsuit feels like him venting a bit of that frustration in a legal capacity. Entrepreneurs are not normally against the concept of profit. I mean, could it also be that he's not very happy that these profits are being now pocketed by the big investor Microsoft? He doesn't love that. But you've got to remember that Elon Musk is worth a lot of money. He doesn't really mind the idea of Microsoft making money. His issue is much more that OpenAI as a company has changed a lot. And he's absolutely not wrong in that. When OpenAI was first founded nearly 10 years ago, it was a not-for-profit and they had all of these lofty ambitions about doing things in the name of saving the planet and things like that. And now it has more. There's no denying that. It does really sum up the whole issue of AI, doesn't it? Is it there to make money or is it there to benefit humanity? Exactly. And, and, and open AI have really struggled to create a company that both puts the future of humanity and AI safety square and centre, but also raise the kind of capital needed to create a really successful generative AI company. And you need loads of computing power, loads of investment. And so they took that decision that they were going to become at least partly a for-profit company a few years ago. By the way, OpenAI haven't got back to us. But what they would say is that we needed to have a for-profit arm of the company to grow. And that was just inevitable. We had to let Microsoft in. James Clayton. Iranians went to the polls on Friday. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت They did so as the singer of this song Shervin Hajipur announced that he'd been jailed for more than 3 years. His song Barai or Four became an anthem for protests inspired by the death in custody in September 2022 of a young Kurdish Iranian woman, Masa Amini, who'd been detained for not wearing her hijab properly. The song listed many of the rights that the protesters were demanding. Shervan Hajipur said that he'd been convicted of inciting people to riot and propaganda against the government. Friday's elections are the first in Iran since the death of Masa Amini. After casting his ballot, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, urged people to vote because the world was watching. Our friends as well as our enemies are observing the affairs of Iran. Pay attention to this, make your friends happy and disappoint the ill-wishers. There are two elections, one for members of parliament, the other for members of the Assembly of Experts who appoint Iran's supreme leader. The turnout is expected to be low. Our correspondent Caroline Davis is in Tehran. Alex, it's been a fascinating day in Tehran. We started off the day at a polling station in central Tehran, which has been one of the locations where international and domestic media had been invited to. And there, there was a celebratory mood. There was someone who was handing out flowers to people outside. There was a newlywed couple, bride and groom, the bride still uh, head to toe in white. And there were some determined voters outside. We spoke to several people who talked about why it was important to them to vote. 
and several of them cited the Supreme Leader's recent comments urging people to come out that this was part of their duty to do so as one of the reasons why they wanted to vote. Um, in the pre-poll polling, there was a suggestion that the turnout was going to be at record lows. Now, some presidential elections have exceeded sort of 85%, but it is looking likely to be much lower in this particular parliamentary election. We went to an area where people were doing their Novruz shopping. Uh, it's about two weeks away from uh, New Year here. And there, we could barely get anyone to stop and talk to us about politics, in complete contrast to the polling station. Those people who did want to talk to us all wanted to do so anonymously. And several told us about why they were not voting. Their main concerns were mostly the economy and inflation that they were very worried about. And they said that they felt that voting in this election wouldn't make a difference to what the outcome of those things would be. So they didn't feel like they were invested. They didn't feel like they wanted to vote. So that will be the big decision here. Will we see people falling into the first camp, encouraged to come out and vote, or will we see them falling into the second camp of people feeling that they're just not being heard? Do these elections have legitimacy? Um, There have been lots of questions about whether or not people have got a wide spectrum to be able to vote for. There are over 15,000 people who are standing for the 290 parliamentary seats and the Iranian authorities have said this is a show of um, how free and fair these elections are, that there are so many of these candidates that are available to be voted for. But critics have said that a lot of people from the more sort of reformist side of politics have been excluded from those lists. Uh, We also have seen some reformists boycott the election altogether uh, and not stand. And so the big question is whether or not there really are uh, enough different alternatives for people to vote for that are on the ballot. Caroline Davis. A single killer whale has been caught on camera for the first time hunting and killing a great white shark off the coast of South Africa. Scientists say the behaviour showed the exceptional hunting skill of killer whales, but it raised questions about how shark-eating orcas might affect the food chain in that part of the ocean, as our science correspondent Victoria Gill explains. The attack was filmed from a boat and it's tricky to make out in all the surface splashing. But the footage shows a male orca pursuing and killing a young eight foot long great white shark. It took less than two minutes. In a detailed, somewhat grisly scientific account, researchers described how the killer whale grabbed the shark by the dorsal fin and thrust forward several times before eventually eviscerating it. Scientists have seen killer whales off the South African coast hunting sharks before. They filmed the attacks with drones back in 2022. But then the whales were working together with one animal blocking the shark's escape while another attacked. This solitary hunt, the scientists say, is surprisingly risky. And it's a snapshot, they say, of what adaptable predators orcas are, learning exactly how to tackle a powerful, dangerous animal in pursuit of a meal. Victoria Gill. Scientists in India have found elephants showing similar behaviour to humans when it comes to mourning their dead. The new study revealed that not only do they loudly mourn, but they bury their dead calves. Parveen Kazwan from the Indian Forestry Service carried out the study. He spoke to Julian Marshall from Ali Purdua in eastern India and explained what had inspired the research. I am a forest officer. I was working in a tiger reserve in North Bengal. So the place where I was living, it was also an elephant reserve. And uh, one day in 2022, we saw a strange case where I saw that in a tea estate, one calf was buried. The position was legs upright 
and half part was buried by sand mud etc so i thought is there any pattern is there any story behind it and then we decided to document such cases and uh, within 2 years we documented five of such cases actually you say similar cases of dead yes. calves buried in the ground yes in the trenches uh, which are located in tier states in the similar position uh, leg supply position and who buried the calves elephants themselves so the family buried those uh, those calves and uh, while they were doing so uh, even uh, people who were living besides these tier states labor or tier state owners managers they also uh, heard loud vocalization by a group of elephants and in morning when we checked uh, we saw that a number of elephants there are pug marks of of elephants and they have buried those calves with the sand and uh, there are number of dung piles which are small to large which shows it was a community work so these elephant families they are burying those calves i have observed two such burials there were uh, herds of elephants from a distance we observed everything so a herd of elephants they were doing vocalization which means they are making some sounds and uh, they were doing some activity and then they left this uh, location after say 30 40 minutes evidence suggested to you that the dead calves had been buried by other members of the herd yes see i am working in this field for many years and i have seen dead calves being lifted and transported by elephants and mothers for days for one of the case i documented uh, the mother took that calf for 2 3 days so yes we have already seen those behaviors and this of course is very reminiscent isn't it of human funeral rites what does it tell you therefore about the emotional bandwidth of elephants as we know that emo- i mean elephants are very emotional they are very intelligent and they are sentient beings we know how mothers they teach everything to their calves remembering the water holes uh, remembering the old paths uh, the migratory paths then this aspect which we documented and we published really shows how emotional they are as far as i know and uh, i have talked with many experts in this field this is uh, first such documentation from asian elephants So you are saying that it has been observed in African elephants? Yes, in African elephants there are um, a few studies which is conducted in a similar way. Yes. Parveen Kazwan from the Indian Forestry Service. Still to come in the Global News podcast. I remember 1976, a very snow rich winter. I remember the 80s, it was cold and then suddenly it stopped. No snow. It's been coming for a while. For a long while. Could skiing on Europe's mountain slopes become a thing of the past? Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere and one of the most lawless. According to the UN, nearly 5,000 deaths were reported last year, more than double the number seen in 2022. Now, in a bid to try to restore calm, the Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, has signed a bilateral agreement with Kenya that could pave the way for 1,000 Kenyan police officers to take part in a UN mission to tackle the gang-related violence that's plagued the Caribbean nation. The plan has been blocked by Kenya's high court speaking at a public lecture in Nairobi Mr Henry said it was currently too dangerous to hold elections because of the violence we cannot go to elections and one of the thing that we aim 
is to have elections as soon as possible. Because we need elections in order to stabilize the country. We need a democratic governance in order to have people to come to invest in Haiti. It remains to be seen if the Kenyan deployment will now go ahead. But in the Prime Minister's absence, Haiti has suffered another bout of gang violence. Harold Isaac is a journalist in the capital, Port-au-Prince. I asked him what the mood was like after Thursday's unrest. Today it's considerably calmer than uh, yesterday, where the city was uh, essentially facing a surge of gang violence attacking several institutions, including the international airport. Are people hopeful that this deployment of the Kenyan forces will finally make things change for the better? Well, people are not sure what to expect from it. It's no secret that it's going to be a daunting mission. But after nearly three years of intense escalation of gang violence, many folks here are hoping for something to happen. Given what we've heard about how everyday life has just broken down in Haiti, how do people survive? How do you survive? You're there in in these conditions which really don't sound much short of sheer anarchy. It's a checkered reality, honestly. Gangs are in control of... Uh, about 80% of the metropolitan area of Port-au-Prince. One has to think of one's commute every day, how you go to places, how you get back. For instance, yesterday, I went to my office downtown and had to cut my day short to evacuate because the violence was closing in. Gangs were, for the most part, shooting all over the place or cutting roads with barricades. Once that happens, you try to play it as safe as possible and seek shelter. For instance, today, I avoided going downtown, just like many other people I know did, you're never too far away from the violence. I mean, you either are going to run into a situation or hear shootings. Listen, I had friends that were at the airport yesterday that were grazed by bullets. So <laughs> it's a surreal reality. But the thing in Haiti is like every day is an act of resistance. For most folks that I know here that are in love with the country and that don't want to go, they try to find ways to survive and to at least try and, and keep their business going. Journalist Harold Isaac speaking to me from Port-au-Prince. In South Korea, it's illegal for doctors to go on strike, but that hasn't stopped nearly 10,000 junior doctors staging a mass walkout this week. On Friday, they were targeted by the police who raided the headquarters of the Korean Medical Association. Doctors are protesting against the government's plans to sharply increase the number of medical school places, claiming they would get paid less if this happened. The dispute looks set to get worse, as our Asia-Pacific editor Celia Hatton told me. Really, we're all looking ahead to Monday. On Sunday, there's expected to be a mass rally of doctors. 25,000 people are expected to take to the streets. We're also going to see on Sunday, the Korean Medical Association will vote on whether senior doctors should join the walkout. Then, looking forward to Monday, that's when the government says that they will start to initiate possible criminal proceedings. So we might see some arrests. And the government has also said they're going to start moving forward with license suspensions. It looks like they'll probably suspend licenses at first for up to three months. Yeah, you mentioned criminal proceedings and also this police raid on the Korean Medical Association. What are they looking for? Well, that's right. This seems to happen a lot. Police carry out raids whenever an organization is under pressure. The Korean Medical Association has criticized the raid, saying that they're under pressure, they're facing intimidation. 
tactics. But, you know, strike culture is very strong in South Korea. I will say that uh, the president, Yoon Suk-yul, has a track record of really standing up to organizations that are striking. Back in 2022, South Korean truckers went on strike for three weeks. They were demanding all sorts of changes to their wages and also to a change in laws and how much they were able to carry on their trucks. They had to back down after three weeks. They were ordered back to work. Uh, Yun's government did not back down and negotiate with them. So that administration really does have a strong track record of not giving in. Why is this proving so hard to resolve? I think it's a tricky one. Actually, the public opinion so far seems to be with the government on this one. South Korea will need an extra 15,000 doctors by 2035. And so the government is saying, look, we really need to do something about this quickly as the population ages. However, the doctors are saying, but that could affect our wages. And it also could affect the quality of medical school education. And that could damage the services that we're able to offer. And so it looks like it's quite a tense situation right now. But at the moment, public opinion is on the side of the government, not the doctors. Celia Hatton. It's ski season in Europe, which is home to some of the world's best slopes. But with another warmer-than-average winter, snow in lower-lying resorts is in short supply. What climate scientists have been warning about for years has now become reality, and many resorts are facing an uncertain future. Imogen Folks in Switzerland has been finding out how they're coping. So I'm on my way somewhere. I haven't been for, oh, it must be 20 years it's a little ski resort just half an hour from Bern and it's called Ruschek Eivalt. And that's where I and my family did some of our first skiing. My name is Michael Kerkel. I'm uh, the president of the ski lift Eivalt. The problem is that uh, there's no snow here. This winter we can't open it. Michael and I are standing at the bottom of what's Switzerland's fourth longest T-bar lift. I remember it well because it's almost two and a half kilometres long. If you can't ski when you get on it, you probably can by the time you get off. But this year, Michael tells me, the lift hasn't been open for a single day and last year for only four. Start, Mürren, Grindelwald or St Moritz. It didn't used to be like this. When the Ruschek Eivalt lift opened in 1969, it was hugely popular with families across Canton Bern. Nicknamed affectionately Little Grindelwald, town mayor Marcus Hirschi remembers, after the bigger, more famous resort not so far away. Back then, people had big ideas, calling it Little Grindelwald. People bought shares in the lift. They thought, yes, here's a thriving resort. Thinking about it, it's quite emotional. Yeah, emotional. Where is it? But the era of weeks, months even, of snow in the Alps is long gone. In his office at Bern University, climatologist Stefan Brunnemann is surrounded by books. I love them. I mean, that's, I cannot fit everything here. Documenting the warming of the planet and the rising snow line. Winters were cold and snowy in the 70s. I remember 1976, a very snow-rich winter. I remember the 80s. It was cold. We were skating on lakes. And then suddenly it stopped. 1989, no snow. 
It was green everywhere. 1990, no snow. And this so was it's the been point. coming for a while. It's for a long while. And already back then, people said, you have to change. Der Schweizer Prestige-Event im Skisport. Die Abfahrt am Lauberhof. And now it's not just lower-lying resorts like Rochec that are threatened. Some of Switzerland's most prestigious ski races, like the Lauberhorn, have struggled recently to get their slopes ready. Stefan Brunnemann sees those golden years when the Swiss were either on the slopes or watching their ski stars win medals disappearing. Saturdays uh, at noon, everyone was in front of the television. And uh, that's also changed. As key races, they need to face that. We had the discussion all winter, this winter, and also they face the same problem. And so I'm not sure whether skiing at all will really be still the, the main entertainment of the Swiss people, at least <laughs> in the future. So where does that leave Rushek and its long, idle ski lift? Michael Cagle is under no illusions. Klimawandel is spürbar, es gibt eine Erwärmung. Climate change is clear. We can see it. The days with snow are fewer and fewer. I think in 10 years we won't be in business. I say that with a heavy heart. I skied here as a child too. I expect in 10 years it will be a nature area here. We just have to make the best of it. Michael Cagle ending that report by Imogen Folks. And finally, single people here in the UK are spending less time getting to know their prospective partners and a cutting date short. So what's behind the change in behaviour? Former dating expert David Lewis has taken a look at the numbers. Long arm-in-arm walks in the country, sharing a bottle of red in front of a roaring fire, patiently getting to know your prospective life partner at a picnic. Not anymore. The dating game is moving with the times. No longer content with boring and pricey nights out, singletons in recession-hit Britain are cutting back. And it's a ruthless world out there. That's according to research group Opinium, who surveyed nearly 4,000 daters here in the UK. Almost half of those questioned say they were more likely to end things early because they didn't want to waste money with someone with no game and zero spark. That jumps to 56% for Gen Zers. That's those born after 1996. But ferret under finances and there might be a bigger picture at play. Relationship coach Fahima Muhammad told the BBC that daters just don't have the patience they once had. Single people nowadays want an instant spark, instant gratification, she told the BBC, in the same way they're used to getting their needs met instantly through websites like Amazon. If they don't get that immediately, they cut things off. Mohammed also points to the lingering effects of the coronavirus pandemic. She suggests single people who've had to stay celibate during lockdowns are more likely to jump from one person to the next to make a match. Those that feel they've lost out on years of prime dating time are keen to make up for it, and then some. But at the other end of the spectrum, for those in a relationship, it's still the case cash can kibosh. British paper The Times recently reported on The Couple Pause, a new name for a slump in sex enjoyed, or otherwise, by some middle-aged couples. And the reason? Growing financial stress. Former dating expert David Lewis, former, I stress, 
because he's now married. And that's all from us for now. But there'll be a new edition of the Global News Podcast later. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, you can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. You can also find us on x at Global News Pod. This edition was mixed by Chesney Forks Porter and the producer was Emma Joseph. The editor is Karen Martin. I'm Alex Ritson. Until next time, goodbye. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.